Welcome to God's Acre On The Go, a worship podcast of the Congregational Church of New Canaan in New Canaan, Connecticut. To learn about the life of our church, our in-person ministries, and the virtual connections and offerings available, please visit us at www.godsacre.org. Now, wherever you are, wherever you are going, we welcome you to worship. Church family, good morning. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to God's Acre on the go, wherever you happen to be, wherever you're traveling. We're so grateful to have you with us this morning. And we've got a treat for you. We've got uh, one of my very best friends, uh, the Reverend Kate Murphy from the Grove Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, with us. Uh, You may remember that I talked about uh, having my circle of friends join us throughout the next year or two. Uh, to be with us for a weekend, to offer a word for Sunday worship, but then to be in conversation after church, and then to go through all our church staff and leadership meetings throughout uh, the following Monday. And the idea is how, after eight years of ministry together, how do we get some new ideas? How do we get different perspectives in? And and my friends, uh, by design and by the grace of God, are a really amazing and diverse group of people. And so uh, we're inviting them in to be conversation partners with us for a week and uh, for a weekend. And Kate is our first. So uh, Kate took a uh, dying little white church in uh, an increasingly diverse neighborhood in Charlotte. And through a lot of struggle and a lot of prayer and a lot of good work and a lot of fine preaching has helped, again, by God's grace to bring it to this amazing multicultural, multi-ethnic church that is just uh, the envy of her conference. Uh, it is what so many churches desire to be but can't get to. So uh, we invite her to speak the word to us and let us prepare our hearts and minds for what she will offer when she looks at the text of the widow's might. Uh, let us prepare ourselves as we listen to this morning's anthem. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side. I can only imagine what my eyes will see when your face is before me. 
While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. I know that this is stewardship season and this is ultimately a message about stewardship, but it isn't a story about money, and it isn't a story about giving. This is a story about seeing, how we see the world we think we know so well, and how Jesus sees the world he made and is redeeming. This is a story about seeing the glory of God. There's a pastor named Nadia Bowles Weber who is an addict in recovery, and she likes to talk about how America's real drug of choice is knowing who we're better than. Our true spiritual high comes from looking down on those we believe are beneath us. But the thing is, it's not just us It's not just America. It's really a human thing. And the way I know is the disciples are constantly caught arguing in Luke's gospel. And their argument is always the same. Who is the greatest? They're caught in that argument in chapter 9 in the gospel of Luke and again in chapter 24. And that is what we call in my house a patron. Who is the greatest the disciples would be saying, and Jesus would walk up and they'd say, I mean, you're the greatest Jesus, obviously, but among us, Jesus, who is the first and who is the last and how do we stack up in between? And looking down on one another, this is disease. This is destructive. Wanting to be the greatest is an idol. But wanting to be great in God Wanting to be great in the kingdom, this is a holy desire. Dallas Willard is a theologian that I'm not supposed to like, but I do. And he has this saying, grace is opposed to earning, but not effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. So to care and to desire deeply to grow up in Christ, to be great in Christ, this desire is not foolish or sinful. Jesus tells a strange story 
about a shrewd manager who cheats his way out of a personal disaster. And we preachers never know what to do with that story. But Jesus tells us what it means. He says, I wish you children of light. I wish you people on my team. I wish you were as shrewd, as motivated, as passionate and creative and intentional about entering fully into salvation, about being about your father's business. I wish you were as shrewd about that that as others are about achieving their own business, about saving themselves from disaster. The Apostle Paul traveled across the known earth to share the gospel. And in the course of his ministry, he was beaten and arrested and imprisoned and chained down. And still he kept on writing letters to the churches he founded. He knew himself to be a messenger of the message of the gospel. And he said, even after he had done so much and suffered so much and accomplished so much, he wrote to fellow believers and he said, I am still pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He goes on to say, so let us live up to what we have already attained in Christ. So wanting to be great in the Lord, wanting to press on to grow up into the full stature of Christ, asking, seeking, knocking for the abundant life, for the kingdom of God, for grace, this is our call and this is our purpose. The problem with wanting to be the greatest, the problem with our addiction to being better than other people is that it's a decoy. We settle for being greater than them. We find a false peace and feeling superior to them instead of seeking and pressing on and entering into the great righteousness that is available to us in Christ. So this is a story about greatness. This is a story about seeing greatness and what that looks like in God's eyes. And Jesus is discipling here in this passage. He's wanting to show his disciples who were obsessed with being the greatest. He's wanting to show them how to be great. So he starts out by saying, not like that. Not like the scribes and the religious authorities and the pastors and the priests who look great to your eyes, who look great with their sacred robes trailing behind them in the temple as they hurry through the outer courts, past the Gentiles and merchants, through the women's court and enter the, into the centered sacred space reserved for them, onto their seats of power and authority. Theirs is a greatness that gives them honored seats at important tables, a greatness that centers their voices in the room where it happens, a greatness they express in long prayers, a greatness that gives them power that they use to take authority over weak and vulnerable people, widows and orphans. And they were appointed to be conservators of their property, to be caregivers and caretakers But the pattern of their greatness was sooner or later, 
the money of the widows and the orphans always ran out, but somehow the scribes' money never did. Jesus said they use their greatness to devour widows' houses. Jesus says, don't fall for any of that. It's worse than an illusion. It's destruction. Jesus says, don't go for greatness like you see in the leaders of the temple. And also, Jesus says in the last verses we read, don't go for the greatness of this place, this temple, this physical structure, which even the Romans who were no stranger to opulence, even the Romans admitted was great. This temple with its colossal silver-plated gates and solid gold doors, with its walls hung with Babylonian tapestries and bejeweled art fashioned into vines. Herod, not that Herod, but his son, Herod refurbished the temple to make it impressive so that its luxury and beauty would testify to the power and glory and greatness of God. But Jesus says... When his greatness-obsessed disciples were marveling at the beauty of the stones of the temple, of the magnitude of the wealth contained in the temple treasury, Jesus said, a time is coming when none of this greatness will remain. All of it will be destroyed, not two stones left standing on another. So not greatness like the leaders of the temple, not like the rich pouring generously into the temple treasury, not greatness like the institution itself. All of those things are great in our eyes, but Jesus speaks against, looks past, foretells the destruction of all that appears greatest to us. But for those of us seeking to become great in the eyes of the Lord, Jesus asks us to turn our eyes and to look where he is looking at a woman, a poor woman, a widow who comes into the temple and gives two copper coins. And these coins are the least valuable coins that were made. One of them was equal to one one one-hundredth of a denarius, and a denarius was the standard pay for one day's manual unskilled labor. So this woman, this poor woman, this widow has contributed the amount a person would earn in five minutes of work. She's given in this holy palace, literally next to nothing. And Jesus says to his greatness-obsessed disciples, look at her. She has given more in faith and in generosity than anyone else, because everyone else here has given out of their abundance and out of their power, but she has given out of her poverty. She has put in all she has left. And the literal translation of that verse is she has given her whole life. And she will walk out of this temple where the religious leaders who are so great that they are responsible for caring for widows and orphans, but instead they use their authority to devour those resources. She will leave this place having given all she has to a marble palace one that Jesus himself says is destined for destruction. And friends, if this story doesn't trouble you, I don't think you're hearing it. 
Because what is the difference between Jesus condemning the scribes for exploiting their power to cheat widows out of everything and Jesus praising a widow for giving everything she has away to a doomed and corrupt institution? Either way, she ends up with nothing. How is this a good thing? How can Jesus see greatness, not tragedy, in her gift? Well, it's been a very good thing, this story over the years for preachers. We trot her out every year during stewardship season to guilt and shame and inspire people. We trot her out so that we can stand in front of you and say, well, I'm not asking you to give everything like her, but surely you can dig a little deeper. Surely you can give a little more. We preach sermons dripping with sincerity. Look at this wonderful, faithful, generous woman. We need more like her. I was reading a scholar this week, also known as a modern day scribe, who said, the church needs givers like this woman. Givers whose desire to see the ministry advance is paramount. Givers who give from the heart. This particular scholar teaches at Dallas Theological Seminary, and because he praised and uh, called for more women like this woman in church institutions, I went and looked up his institution, his seminary. I looked at the leaders, the professors, the trustees, and the board, and what I found is They were all white. They were almost all men. There were only three women, all of whom were identified as either the spouse of a famous pastor husband or by the C-suite positions they held in large, powerful Christian institutions. So the scholar says we need more people like this woman. She's an example, but he doesn't need her in his institution No, his institution is led by powerful and wealthy men and women. See, we read this text and we talk about the widow, but what we see is not the woman, but what we see is her mites, her two coins. We see the value in her money. We see the value in her example inspiring other people to give their money, but we don't see her. She walked into the temple that day poor and powerless and vulnerable, and she walked out even more so. But I think Jesus is asking us to look not at her money or what we might be able to do with her story, but to look at her. What if Jesus was serious teaching his disciples about greatness in the kingdom of God? What if he was serious when he told us to look at her? What if she isn't to be pitied? What if she isn't to be used as a guilt trip? I highly doubt that Jesus's point in directing the disciples' attention to her was to encourage everyone to give everything they had to the temple funds. If Jesus was really only functioning here as the chief religious institution development officer, then why in the world were the temple leaders so eager to have him killed? No, there is something else to see here in this moment, in this gift, in this woman. There's something we are missing, something that Jesus is trying to open our eyes to. Jesus is trying to show us what we can only see in her, show us about what it looks like to be great 
in the kingdom of God. I followed a rabbit trail this week while I was studying this text to a story that I had never read before. And it makes sense I'd never read it because it's buried in the 24th chapter of 2 Samuel. It's a story about King David. There are a lot of stories about David. We tell stories about him as a brave shepherd boy, as the youngest son unseen and overlooked even by his own family, unexpectedly chosen by God's prophet to be king. The boy who was wise enough to reject Saul's armor and brave enough to defeat Goliath with only five smooth stones. Secretly anointed king, we celebrate him for all of his incredible military accomplishments. We count all the enemies he killed, yet he never raised his hand against the Lord's anointed Saul, even when Saul sought to kill him. And David, we tell stories about him, not just as a warrior, but as a worshiper whose love and zeal for the Lord was so great that it led him to dance with such ecstasy before the Ark of the Covenant that he danced right out of his clothes, naked and unashamed in front of all the people. We tell stories about David, the poet king, the man of prayer, and we tell the story not of the woman that he raped and the man he had killed, but we tell a story of the woman who seduced him and ruined him. And after that point, his story turns sad and complicated. And the Bible tells us many more stories of David, but we find them hard to mine for leadership examples, so we're quick to turn the page to the stories of his son Solomon. But scripture bears witness to his whole life. And at the very end of his life, under quite mysterious circumstances I don't have time to go into now, at the very end of his life, David once again sins greatly against God. I don't have time to tell you the story, but it is a good one. And his action was different, but his sin was the same. He fell once again into the trap of wanting to be a great king in the eyes of all the other nations, wanting to be the greatest. And once again, God sends a prophet, this time a man named Gad. And he comes to David and he tells David the truth about what he has done and the depth of his sin. And David... And this is his real beauty, his real greatness. Once again, David listens and he sees and he repents and he seeks the prophet to tell him how he can make amends. And the prophet tells him, you need to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of a man named Aruna the Jebusite. And what you need to know, if your biblical geography is a little shaky, what you need to know is the Jebusites lived on the land that would come to be called Jerusalem. And in an earlier military campaign, David had captured that land, and in his zeal for the Lord, David had sought to wipe out the Jebusites to cleanse the land so that it would only be available to the Israelites. 
So now all of these years later, listening to the prophet Gad grieving his sin once again, he hears these words and he gets ready in his repentance to go and make amend. He goes to the land of Aruna, the Jebusite. And Aruna sees him coming and he runs out and he throws himself on his face before the king. And he says, just tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. And David says, I need to buy your threshing floor so I can build an altar to God and make a sacrifice and a burnt offering to seek forgiveness for my great sin. And Aruna, who's no fool and clearly a student of history, Aruna says, hey, you just take the land. You just take whatever you want. You can have the land. You can have my threshing floor. Here are my oxen. They can be the animals for your burnt offering. Here's the oxen's yoke and the threshing sledges. I'm clearly not going to need them anymore because you're taking my threshing floor. Just burn them as the wood. I'm giving it all to you. May the Lord, your God, accept your offering. And David, in this moment of repentance, in the sorrow and failure, facing once again his flaws, seeking once again God's mercy, David turns and says, no, I cannot accept these gifts from you. I must buy the land from you. I must pay you a high price. And here's the good part. David says, I will not make a sacrifice to the Lord that costs me nothing. So they agree on a price and David buys the threshing floor and he builds an altar to God there, an altar acknowledging his pride and his guilt and his sin, an altar acknowledging the mercy and the righteousness of God. And David makes a sacrifice seeking forgiveness and new life. And if you've been hanging around the Bible for a while, then one other thing you probably know about David is at the height of his power and righteousness, he made plans to build God a temple. And God said to him, no, you are not allowed to build me a temple. There is too much blood on your hands. So if you've been hanging around these stories for a while, you probably know that David did not build the temple. But what I didn't know until this week, what you may not know, is that the temple David's son Solomon built, the temple that the people rebuilt after their exile, the temple that was refurbished by Herod, the temple that Jesus and his disciples sat in that day, the foundation of that temple is the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. The foundation of that temple is the threshing floor that David bought that day. The sacrifice he didn't want to make for free. David didn't build a temple at the height of his glory, but David provided the foundation for the temple he wasn't permitted to build. And it was a foundation laid not on his achievements, not on his greatness, not on anything David did for God. It was a foundation laid on what God did for David. An altar built by David flawed and failed and on his knees seeking help and forgiveness and mercy, facing again the illusion of his own righteousness and falling back on the righteousness of God, which is manifest in God's mercy and grace. Hidden beneath all the marble and the silver and the gold and the tapestries that appear so great to our human eyes, is that stone threshing floor and David's words, 
I will not make a sacrifice that costs me nothing. And generations later, this widow makes a sacrifice that costs her everything. And Jesus, teaching his disciples about greatness, points to her and says her gift is the most sacred. Her faith is the greatest of all. So what are we supposed to see here? The foundation of our life with God is not our righteousness or our generosity, but God's. David worshiped God most faithfully, not when he offered to do something great for God, but when he called out to God in his sin and weakness and brokenness. And this widow, who seems to have so little, who looks as if she's leaving with nothing, she alone has the one thing that any disciple of Jesus should desire most. She has the approval of the Lord. In that moment when she casts in her two coins, she builds upon the foundation David laid, coming before God, not in power, not in fullness, but in emptiness and weakness. And those with eyes to see will see that she walks away strong and free, giving all she has, all she is, her whole life and all her future to a broken and brutal world that does not see her does not value her, will surely destroy her. The coins are not the gift. She is. Like John the Baptist, she is walking ahead of Jesus, preparing the way. The widow doesn't show us how to give. She shows us how to live in Christ. The widow is a foreshadow, a precursor, a forerunner of Christ Jesus who has set his face towards Jerusalem, a city of his own who do not recognize him, who will not receive him. And Jesus too will give his whole self to this broken and brutal world that is not worthy of him, that will destroy him. He will give his whole self, his whole life, trusting not in the power of his righteousness, but in the power of the righteousness of God. Like David, like the widow, Jesus will hold nothing back, but will cast himself fully, body and soul, onto the promises of God, making his life a canvas that exposes the destruction of what we call great and the powerful beauty of the mercy of God. The standard for us as people of faith, the universal standard is not how much we give. It's not our perpetual seeking and ranking to give more, to be the greatest, or to look down on those who give less. It is not how much we give that matters, but how much we hold back. Will you pray with me, please? Holy and loving God, we do not see as you see, but we want to. Because God, we know that the things that appear great in our eyes 
the things we desire, the dreams that seduce us, God, we know that they lead to destruction, our own and our neighbors and even creation itself. God, we pray that you would open our eyes and teach us to see your way. Teach us to see that we can trust our whole lives and our whole selves to you because you are faithful to us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. And now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And as you go, know this for sure. The love of God surrounds you. And God's own Holy Spirit walks beside you, would live within you as your friend. And the grace of Jesus Christ, it will bear you up this day and every day of your life. Alleluia. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Worship on the Go. To support this podcast and the ministries of our church, please consider making a contribution by clicking the Give button in the top right on our website, www.godsacre.org, or within today's email. God bless you and have a wonderful week.